Hello, and welcome to the DMV Business Show, a weekly show where we get to meet local business and community leaders in the DC, Maryland, and Virginia area. They get to impact their story and how they got there. You can expect to hear advice and learn about their journey and how they went from point A to point B. My name is Odo Sevilla, and I'm a commercial real estate advisor in the local DC, Maryland, and Northern Virginia area. I have been very fortunate to have worked with many amazing entrepreneurs and executives, from startup founders to international Fortune 500 companies. And one of the things I love about what I do is I get to form these great relationships with some interesting people. I get to know them and I learn about how it all started. And I love hearing a good business story. When I'm not working in commercial real estate, I just also happen to be the host of this show. So please enjoy and welcome to the DMV Business Show. Hello everyone, welcome to the DMV Business Show. I'm your host, Odo Sevilla. Today I have a wonder, an amazing guest. Um, you're in for a real treat, Mike McDermott. Mike is the president of Inquisit IT and his resume, you, you're going to hear, so you're not going to want to miss any of this episode. So Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. Um, before we go into your career, I'd like to first start off just for people to get to know you. How were, you know, childhood, how, were you, are you from around this area? How did you grow uh, up? I, I grew up uh, mostly in New Jersey. So I was born up in Long Island, New York, and pretty early on moved down and moved around Jersey about six or seven times. Um, and honestly, it's, it's my dad kind of got a, you know, a little bit more successful, a little bit better job. So I think when I was a kid, he was driving a Pepperidge Farm bread truck through the Bronx. And, you know, then he made it all the way up to a broker making, you know, good money. And actually now he's off uh, and running his own business. He started when he was 52. But, um, but no, in terms of growing up, you know, middle class neighborhood, uh, you know, didn't necessarily have a lot of money, but didn't necessarily you know, have some of the struggles that others have either. Um, you know, started working when I was 12. That was kind of the mandate in the household. And you got your working papers and started paying social security at 14. And um, just kind of a, a, a high work ethic, kind of, you know, ethical go to church. I was probably not the best kid when it came to all of that type of upbringing. I under church, what, um, what, what, what religion? Uh, it was, was raised Roman Catholic until, you know, confirmation time came and you had your own driver's license and you skipped some classes and I never went through with all that, but. Did, oh, so, and, and then you didn't get confirmed? No, no, okay. I didn't. I never, you know, I, to me, it, it just kind of became something where it, it was for, it's, it's kind of a, you know, religion to me is kind of a very personal thing. And I didn't feel like I needed to go through this entire process to know right from wrong. I, I feel the same way. Uh, I, I say I dropped out of Sunday school before confirmation. Uh, myself, I, you know, I, you know, was baptized at the first communion and all. Um, I, I dreaded going. I, I grew up in D.C., so we yeah. would always walk a couple blocks from where we lived in our apartment to uh, the school, the Catholic church there. And mm -hmm. and in Sunday school, my my mom would always come on. You need to go. And but in the end, I, I didn't quite make it and didn't get confirmed. So I completely understand. Yeah. I'm in the same boat. <laughs> um, so you grew up always around Jersey, you said, right? Yep. And then uh, when I was going, when I was first going into college, coming out of high school, uh, I was recruited to play soccer. Um, not, you know, any sort of division one star athlete, you know, kind of lower end division one, division two schools were interested. Um, decided to go to Elon, ended up with a ACL, MCL and a double fibula break. Oh, wow. Um, what that, position did you play, by the way? Usually midfield, midfield or a center back. Okay. All right. I was, I was usually the shortest center back on any field. Okay. <laughs> but, um, but so after, you know, after that injury, I couldn't play. I just, that, that jump from kind of high school ball, to soccer balls or college balls, a really big jump. And I was a good athlete, but not a great athlete like some of these guys were in terms of talent. And so I just knew I wasn't going to make it back on the field competitively at that level. And so kind of made the decision, well, if I can't play soccer in college, why would I attend college? So might as well join the Marine Corps. So that's what I did. Did you get injured, what, freshman year or when? Yep. Okay. Yep. Freshman, year. freshman year. So scholastically, you know, I tried to go back several times throughout, uh, you know, the Marine Corps and kind of career coming up um, and probably have two or three years worth of school, I think, collectively, but never, uh, never finish a degree. No, you know, never finish formal college education or anything. 
were you, um, is anyone in the family, do they have any college education? Were you the first one? I'm curious. Oh, no, my, my, my dad's got college education. My mom's actually a, had a, okay. she got a master's degree in, well, she had uh, education and math. So, you know, you, coming, she was an educator um, and a, a, literally a mathematician and an artist. It was, she was incredibly well-rounded. And uh, so when your son comes home over the freshman year of college and says, hey, I'm going to join the Marine Corps because I can't play soccer anymore, that discussion did not go well. Wow. How did they take it? Um, so they, were, they were very angry. They, uh, they, they actually asked my girlfriend at the time, who I ended up marrying, we were married for 15 years, and uh, they asked her to try and convince me to not join. To, of course, she tells them, you've met him, right? Like, once that decision's made, it's made. Um, and so, so he said, okay, well, then, you know, you got to go. If, you, if that's what you want to do, go be on your own. Go, go be on your own. And so I just called the recruiter up and I said, hey, when's the earliest date I can go to boot camp? And, you know, this was kind of coming back after a semester. He goes, well, right after, right after the holidays. I said, sign me up. So January 2nd, I took off to boot camp. Well, what made you, Mike, go into the Marine instead of, you know, there's, there's plenty of options you can go into? Yeah, I just, you know, I was the kind of typical, you know, kid with a, you know, a lot of energy and, and testosterone and everything. And I just felt like they were the toughest. Okay. At, you know, and, and you go into a recruiting office. I think now it's a little different. I see the, you know, I don't know what the policies have changed, but they're a little more laid back. But in those days, everybody had their blues on and, and it's just an impressive uniform and an impressive uh, service. And, you know, especially for an 18, 19 year old kid, I was like, I want to do that. I want to wear that uniform. Okay. I'm curious. I know you mentioned soccer. You went to school for soccer, but, but growing up in your household, I don't know if you have any siblings. How, how was it? Were you always into athletics? Were you just soccer? Or? No, I was oldest of four. Okay. Um, and uh, it was three boys and then a girl. So there was a, a lot of just, you know, athletic events in the house with three boys, just, you know, being a little crazy. I came up actually, I was, I've always been a decent athlete. So athletics were kind of my thing. I think I lettered in and like back, way back in high school, probably lettered in four or five sports. Um, I actually played football and played up on varsity my freshman year and then decided this wasn't really for me. I didn't, you know, it's like, what are these triple sessions and stuff? The soccer guys are all going out. I'm like, I'm going to go back and play soccer. So I did that. Uh, that, that, you know, made the football team mad, but it was whatever. And then uh, I was a pretty good lacrosse player. That was probably my second sport and then did a indoor track and, you know, a whole bunch of other stuff. Okay. And then kind of fast forward into the Marine Corps. That's where I picked up rugby. Oh, and okay. So I started playing rugby in Rhode Island when I was at the Naval Academy prep school and then stuck with it and, you know, played up in the Marine Corps and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and it was that that really got me into the weightlifting and things is what I do now is, is body build. Um, but it was, it was a very rough sport. And, you know, I literally had a tooth knocked out and a, a retina torn and things like that. And I said, you know what, I just need to get bigger than these guys because I'm getting just rolled over here. And so that's what I did. Wow. So you, you got into bodybuilding when you were playing rugby, right? Is that what led to it? I got into a lot of just a lot of weightlifting. And I got oh, into okay. the, you know, really just kind of that, that type of training, the weight training, the heavy lifting. And I, I consumed everything written on it that I could to just kind of understand it and, you know, and honestly, and get bigger. And I, I didn't, but I didn't start competing in bodybuilding until I was 40. Oh, so you actually do compete. Okay. Wow. You know, get on stage in my underwear and the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm curious. I know this is totally off topic, but it, this interests me because I, I actually picked up more seriously lifting weights, maybe about a year and a half, two years ago. Do, do you have a favorite all time bodybuilder? Who is it? <sighs> Gosh, I, I actually really like Dorian Yates. Oh, I, no, are you serious? I love Dorian Yates from um, the UK. Now he's actually living in the south of Spain. Yes. Yes, yeah. yeah. Just, uh, I, I appreciated the way he trained, his work ethic, and the fact that he's been able to kind of keep it together afterwards. That's where I don't see a lot of athletes really be successful there. He was able to take the sport and kind of separate himself a little bit and not have it so that the sport defined everything about him and his life. And I, so I, his mental uh, side is really what I liked about how he put the physique in place that he put. I mean, when you listen to him, 
ate, you know, he recorded everything he ate, everything he, you know, everything that he consumed was in a logbook, understanding the results, all his weights, and he was just, um, this was before, you think about, you know, that, that era in the yeah. 90s. There was no YouTube, there was no internet, there was no place to find things. You really had to learn your own body by writing stuff down and looking at pictures and having people look at things like that. And uh, the way in which, you know, he did that, I think is just really impressive. I, I agree. He, he's, he's definitely a learner. He's very methodical, like you said, as far as his record keeping. And, and I, I follow him. And I even remember when I was looking at him, like, what did Yates do as far as just like with cardio besides the lifting? Um, and, and he was like, not even much, just what, walk his two Dobermans for 20 minutes, he would say, I think at, in the evenings. Um, but I, I'm a big Yates fan as well. So, okay, that's cool. Yeah. Did you have another one? You, who was it? You know, once, once I find someone and like you yeah. said, and, and I saw after he left this industry, I mean, he's still in it because I think he has at least a gym or a few in the South of Spain. Yep. Um, but he's kept up um, with, and you see some of these other guys like um, Coleman or, or, or even other people um, after they leave the industry, totally different as far as the way they maintain themselves. Um, yes. So yeah, I, Dave Cutler is probably another guy from that perspective who's really done the best and been able. He's he's kind of made it a business career, but he's really kind of kept it together afterwards. Who, who was it again? What was the name you said? Dave Butler. Dave Butler. Jay Cutler. Oh, oh, Jay Jay Cutler. I'm sorry to hear you. Yeah, Jay. Okay, yes, that's true. That's true. But once I found Yates and what he does, especially with um with the eccentric portion, um, mm -hmm. you know, when you're lowering it, and it that, that's just a game changer. Um, yeah, huge, huge, big time. It's not even about just lifting heavier, just taking it from point A to point B is there's so much to it. Um, You're right. yeah, I'm sorry. I went totally off tangent because I'm also big into this. <laughs> it is, it is. But my wife always tells me why you wake up so early in the morning. Um, my thing is that at 4 a.m., um, I'm up and, you know, I'm, I have to do my thing. It, that's, uh, that's sort of my staple every day. Um, just go down, you know, hit the gym, you know, the weights. And, you know, people do, you know, meditation, all sorts of things, running and jogging. Um, but I've really got into it maybe the past two years or so into this. And, um, and it's always sort of been Yates and his methods that I follow. And the people realize it's, it's um, with a lot of it's the food. I mean, when you're really committed to it. Yes. You're eating very strict and on a schedule and things like that. When you're also running a business, that's been probably the funniest part about kind of integrating those two pieces. <clears throat> um, you know, before all this, you're running downtown and having meetings or, you know, you have a lunch and you might bring your own or you have very specific places you eat because you're dieting, whatever the case may be. It, it, it really does. It's, it's an entire lifestyle. So it kind of integrates across. It is, and, and I don't even know how you do it when you compete because I'm sure that's even much more harder. Um, yeah. you know. that, that's, that's the toughest part. Preps um, are, are definitely the toughest part because you're, you're up in the morning as you are, you know, and then you're, you're escalating that over time in terms of cardiovascular fitness, and then you're taking your food away. And once you get to where you're, you know, eight, six or eight weeks, um, from actually being on stage, you know, say a guy like me might eat 4,500 calories on a normal day off season when I'm trying to grow a bit. When I'm dieting down, I might be at 2,000 calories, you know, at that point and trying to lose all that last little body fat that you need to get off before you get on a stage. And so you, uh, not only carrying meals and everything, but you're not always with it. So, you know, I've got a great team here and there's, there's been a couple of times where you know, we're going into a meeting, we're going to see a customer and it might be a little tense or whatever the case may be. And Madeline mostly will lean over and go, when was the last time you ate? Either you need to eat or I'll eat this. <laughs> <laughs> that was going to be my next question. How is your team or your wife? Because especially when you're, like you said, when you're cutting, prepping before the competition, she's probably like, honey, you need to eat. You're, 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 you're getting a little too, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I, so I got, I divorced my wife um and you know been dating for the most part yeah the preps the preps are definitely a relationship strain because you're just kind of cranky a lot of the day how, how, how often do you compete now mike do you do it at least once a year or no mm, 
I was trying to do that. Um, but so the hard part is getting enough off season in that you get your calories back up, you improve upon your last showing, and then you take the time to get your calories down to breathe. Um, it's also, it's a long game sport, you know? So I went, I uh, won a show last year, almost two years ago now, um, then went to North American championships, missed my pro card. I was middle of the pack. Um, and so I was trying to requalify for that. So that's kind of my goal is to just get a pro card, achieve that yeah. status. The next will be kind of, you know, competing at that level. Um, but uh, I separated my shoulder. So, you know, I've, I've realized just you've got to, you know, the, the stress that you feel at work, family, everything else has a huge physical impact too, you know, not just on you, you're tight. And so you might injure yourself or something like that. But if, you know, if you're tired, your hormones get thrown off. And so you've really got to pick a time where you know you can achieve the level of discipline that's needed. Get on that schedule. And, and what I've found is the best thing is just kind of advertise it. You know, I, I let people know, hey, I'm, you know, I am competing. I'm going to be doing this. So these are the hours that I'm not going to be here. These are the hours that I'm 100% available to anybody that needs it kind of thing. That's cool. Uh, I, I don't want to be the whole show about bodybuilding because we can we could talk for hours about this. But one, one last question regarding this, especially with you said, you know, I'm sure you have a family, you have children, you have your business and you also do this on the side. How, how do you schedule your time throughout the day? How does the morning during, you know, I set up about every quarter I do what I call an ideal day. And so, um, you know, look, our, our, our days change, our priorities kind of shift a little bit. You have different things coming up in, in different parts of the year. So I find about every quarter, I, I write down all the things that are important to me that I want to accomplish for, you know, I need to accomplish for the business. I need to get done daily. I need to do once a week, whatever the case may be. And then I basically lay that out on a calendar and then leave times open for meetings and, and things like that. And I publish that to a lot of the folks around me in the office so that they kind of have an idea of what that schedule is going to be. And it's very transparent, but that's okay. what I found. It's <clears> that you have most, most of the, most of us have more things we want to accomplish than in reality, we're probably going to get to um, time is finite and time management is probably one of the most underrated skills. And I think one of the things that just kind of helps that is to, and I, I, I do some executive coaching and help people sit down and go, you know, write down everything that's important to you. And then they write everything down and want to talk about the schedule. Okay, so now you're going to take the next two weeks and continue that list because you have to kind of get that first layer off. And then there's other stuff. And what you find is there's two or three things that came up that that person really wanted to get to, but they're distracted by the day to day. And so once, once you have a good list of what you want to accomplish or any, you know, that kind of thing, or want to get done through the day or the week, then you can sit down and, and lay it out on a calendar and you, and you can look at the things that you're not going to get done and go, this is no longer that important to me. And so it kind of becomes a stress release as well. Sure. Sure. But you personally, are you typically when you're working out, are you doing it in the morning or in midday in the evenings and then you head into the office or how is your schedule? So I do, yeah, sure. I do two a day. So I get up early. Okay. Um, I do cardio still and then rehabbing the shoulder. So that, that'll, that'll come down a little bit, but, um, then I usually try to get two or three meals in before a workout. So I'll tend to do a workout somewhere around three, four o'clock. Okay. Where if you get a good full day, I got a couple of meals in me and things like that. And then um, I'll get back online in the evenings, answer all the emails, maybe finish a proposal review or whatever it is that's going on, kind of set up for the next day and I'm good. Okay. I see. Great. So let's go back to rugby. You were in the Marines and that, that, that's what led to the, to the weightlifting and everything. Um, so how, how long were you in the Marines for? Uh, I did six years okay. active duty. Um, was in the intelligence side of things. Um, did my first five and then got out for about a year. And then uh, for the uh, invasion into Iraq, got recalled to work for the director of intelligence of the Marine Corps. You, so you, you went over to Iraq? Um, it briefly, um, okay, okay. and most of my time at, uh, at headquarters Marine Corps. Okay. Okay. I understand. Thank you for serving by the way. Yeah. So then after you left the Marines for, you said, so six years you did that and then what led to you leaving or how did, what was the transition yeah. there? Well, so, um, at the time I actually wanted to do counterintelligence work full time 
and uh, had gone through the process uh, to have that as a full-time MOS because we worked with those guys pretty closely. And um, but I couldn't get out of my MOS. It was just one of those times where there wasn't enough people in the field. So I decided to get out. Um, the first job I got when I got out was actually with a company that had just been bought uh, by Titan Systems and was kind of going through a little bit of that. And it was on a contract in the same building I worked in while I was in the Marine Corps. So I, I literally got my papers on a Sunday and showed up to a new job the next morning on a Monday. And it was, it was, it was a fun contract. I learned a lot. What the contract was is basically doing support to operating forces and, and different IT systems and training. Contract had been in place for about 18 months, time and material, and they had been through two program managers in that 18 month period and they were never able to get a classroom and computers and all of that kind of stuff. So I, after being there for a week, my boss came from Virginia beach to see me and we sat down and I said, I said, uh, you know, what, what's going on with this contract? And you go, you know, he said, oh, don't worry. We're going to get you a program manager. They'll handle this. They'll handle this. And this, you know, probably the kind of first real entrepreneurial spark in, the, in this industry. I just said, well, why can't I do that? If I, if I do that, can I have that program manager job? And you know, he looked at me and laughed. And so I said, and I want a $5,000 raise, which is like nothing, you know, but at that point when I was making, I was, I mean, that was huge money. Sure. And so, um, it, you know, once he was done laughing and I was getting pretty pissed off, he decided, okay, let me give this kid a shot. And we shook on it. So I got us a full classroom. I got 22 ruggedized computers in the case. Um, you know, I got a router and we got switches. We got all of this stuff. And I put together this classroom that we were now going to train Marines in. And he came back down from Virginia beach. And <laughs> I think when he saw the classroom, I looked at him and I guess I knew he was just going, Oh shit, these guys, this kid actually did it, you know? And so I said, well, so I'm going to be the PM. So when do I get to hire my person? You know? And it was, it was a little tumultuous. I did not fit the labor category requirements. So I actually called the government customer and like threatened to leave because I, you know, I was felt like they shook on it. There was yeah. nothing else to it. The, the concept of having a contractual agreement with requirements had nothing to do with anything in my purview. It was, we shook on a deal and this is going to, this is going to happen. Um, he was a, it was a guy at headquarters, Marine Corps government guy actually kind of got me that job. Um, he, told the, uh, our, the, the managers over at Titan, let them, let them do it. You know, he accomplished what everybody couldn't in 18 months. And so, so then I got to the hiring phase, which was another kind of funny story because so I was an Intel guy and, you know, I know computers, but what I also knew enough at that point was I needed somebody who had, I mean, I was 22, maybe I need somebody who had gray hair, was probably retired out of the Marine Corps. Like I still needed that character that I could go places with, whether I was in charge or not, it didn't matter, but they weren't going to trust me as a kid coming in unless I had the type of experience, right? You're not going to walk into an infantry colonel's office and tell him all the great things you could do with a computer at 22 with no real world experience in his eyes. And so went through and, um, I ended up hiring, and I wanted to hire a guy who was retired first sergeant, infantry. He had uh, he'd gotten out, and he was driving trucks for a living. And the other person was uh, th that we interviewed was also retired, but he had the same job I did. He just did it for 14 more years. And I vehemently argued for the guy who was the truck driver yeah. because he was what our customer, in my mind, wanted to see from us. And so uh, under protest, I was able to actually hire him. And so, and then I actually hired another guy that's retired. So I very quickly had to figure out um, and adjust to, and I wouldn't have categorized, I wouldn't have said it in these words in those days, but figure out my leadership style very quickly. Because I had two guys that were retired out of the military. They'd been through all the leadership schools and kind of learned all the same stuff I had. Um, but, and they were also 20 years my senior. and. I had to get them to essentially work for me. And so it was, you know, it was, it was, that's a process, right? Where, you know, they're looking at you like you could be their kid, which 
you could. <clears throat> and you need to move them in the same direction to get things done, to move it, to make money, to, you know, all of these things you have to do on a contract. And so uh, very quickly had to learn how to do, how to deal with people in an entirely different way. You know, as a Sergeant in the Marine Corps, you know, you're most concerned about the people who are below you and you can yell at them and they do what you need them to do. When you get into a corporate world and people have outranked you maybe in the military and they're definitively older than you, that scenario entirely changes and you have to exercise muscles that you're not even sure were there. <laughs> so, so how did you do that? Because at this time you're 22, you said? Yeah, I was mid twenties. Yeah. yeah, I was the low twenties. I was probably okay. 23. So here you are managing people that are at least double your age. And like you said, can be your father almost. And so what'd you do as far as leadership skills and, and things like that? Sure. So what became really apparent to everybody and, and kind of had to talk to them about is I can't do their job and they couldn't do mine, but we couldn't do the job without each other. So the, 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 the mission, right, was to train Marines and to help them. You know, we, we deployed with them in some cases as well. And I didn't know what it was like to be an infantry guy, to, you know, do a lot of the things that those guys have to do in the heat of a firefight and, and everything else. But they don't know what I know with regards to how these systems work and what you can do with them and what you can get to show up and how it can make life easier. And so, it, you know, basically real quickly said, there's, you know, there's not a hierarchy here. We work shoulder to shoulder. You can't do what I can do. I can't do what you can do. Together, we can get a lot done. Uh, and so that's basically how we ran that work. And it, it worked out incredibly well. In fact, the guy who was the truck driver guy now runs that program as a SES in the Marine Corps. Oh, he's still there? He's still there. Oh, yeah. that's awesome. So okay. From Camp Lejeune, he's up at headquarters Marine Corps running the entire thing. Okay, okay. So, so then from there, Mike, you, you left or you were there briefly for a period of time? I actually got recalled. So, oh, okay. So this was um, right after 9-11, but pre-invasion. It was that kind of period in time we were doing that. Uh, and then I got recalled back to active duty. And when they recalled me, instead of keeping me uh, headed to Iraq down as a contractor, I basically got bought up to headquarters Marine Corps to work there. Uh, at the time, I was not happy about that. I remember calling the people up at headquarters Marine Corps going, I'm supposed to ship out as a contractor. Like, you know, this is what you do when you're a Marine. You know, you, this is what you've been kind of waiting for, uh, which sounds crazy. But, um, but they said, no, 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 relax. There'll be plenty for you to do up here, but you need to come up to Arlington. So, so we did. Okay. Okay. And then from there, what happened next? So, so I worked there. I was at headquarters Marine Corps for a year. Decided um, for a couple of reasons. Wanted to to get out again. Uh, at that time, I two 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 of my daughters. I have four daughters, and um, was kind of looking around the D.C. area. I'd, ne I'd never really spent any time in D.C. until I got recalled here, and you know realized this is the mecca of government contracting. And so you know, and the, the, some of the guys had gotten out and they're talking about their salaries. So I was like, there's no reason to leave this, <laughs> you know, didn't realize cost of living was what it was entirely, but you know, the money just, it was, it was great money. It was yeah. a great career opportunity at that point coming out of Titan. I also felt like, um, I could do a lot more. So one of the things that happened when I was with Titan is there was a program managers meeting. And so <laughs> I very clearly remember going to this program manager's meeting and it's, it was, I tell people, they joke, it's like the Jose bank convention. I mean, it was like a sea of 50 year old white guys and I just kind of looking around and listening for the day. And I was like, these guys are just, you know, they're not dumb. They're very smart people, but they just don't have that like edge to push. Like they're like the conservatives. I could do better than these folks. Yeah. Um, so I really, I really wanted to do something in this sector because I still had that sense of service, but I wanted to do something bigger than just be, you know, billing out as an employee on a couple of contracts here and there. So, um, when I was getting out the, you know, I, I also was not a very hot commodity because I don't have a college degree. So even with, you know, six years in the Marine Corps and the clearances and all of that kind of stuff, I actually had trouble, a lot of trouble finding a job. And so um, finally, CSC hired me. So I said, okay, 
let me do this. They hired me to work at the National Security Agency. Um, and so I would go up there and I actually enrolled back in school, took a full load and figured, okay, let me, let me get this degree, which is killing me from getting any of these other jobs. And then I could see if I could get out into something or start a business or, you know, figure, figure out my next step. Sure. Within a month of that, we got, we actually wrote the proposal and got the contract to do the uh, computer forensic work on the blackout that happened in, I think it was 2002. Okay. So it was a blackout, the roll from Ohio through Pennsylvania, New York. Um, and there was a, we had to do a bunch of forensics relative to where the blackout started um, and kind of overlay that with some information that was in the public on how to choke, choke points at that point in the internet and uh, power grids. So there was a theory that hackers had done it from externally. So it was kind of a fun project to be on for a little bit. But at the same time, I had just enrolled in a full load at University of Maryland, thinking I was going to be working at National Security Agency. And now I'm traveling downtown every day and traveling to Ohio. <clears throat> so I put the feelers back out. And one of the folks that I had talked to previously and had kept in touch um, was a founder of Facile. And honestly, he was in San Francisco and he kept emailing me. And at first I was like, oh, what's this dude want? <laughs> but, uh, you know, he, he at, at the end of it said, you know, why don't you interview with my business partner and one of our guys that does cyber work, we may have something for you. <clears throat> so I went and went to that interview. It was in Crystal City. It was the first time I was ever in Crystal City. And I got completely lost in the underground area. Okay. I, mean, I probably walked in circles for a half hour um, and finally got to the interview. At this point, I'm like 35 minutes late and the interview seemed to go well, but it was fairly quick. So I'm thinking I was a half hour late. I'm screwed. I got nothing to lose. And so uh, this business part, he, he says, is there anything that you would like to ask me? And I said, yeah, actually there is. I said, you have been incredibly successful as an entrepreneur and, and those founders had been, and they, they were with Facile. Um, I said, so here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to do sales for your organization. And if I can close work and actually grow your company, I want you to capitalize a company for me later on. And he kind of just, he looks at me like, where did this come from? Uh, and he goes, you know what? You've got balls, you're hired. And hired me on the spot. Wow. And, and you, so, were, you were the fourth employee there, right? I was. I was, yeah. the, I was the fourth person in the company. Um, and I spent the next 11 and a half years um, kind of working my way up from being a, you know, a billable security engineer, which it sounds like I still know what I'm doing, but that field has changed so much. You can't put me behind a keyboard. Um, into ultimately the president of the company. Uh, and, and it was a blast. Uh, we grew, I mean, it was four of us. We were like, you know, maybe 250, 300,000 in revenue. And when I left, we were at just under a thousand employees and about 147 million in revenue. Wow. So it was a, it was a neat ride. Very yeah. neat. Ride. And, and you, you, I learned a ton in those. That was probably just from a learning experience perspective, about a 90 degree upshot, as you can imagine. That's huge growth. So did, did he stake you at the end after you left? We did. I didn't leave the company actually on the best of terms. Um, okay. All right. So we, uh, yeah, we, it, it, it was a, it was a, it was a bitter end, unfortunately. A um, couple of lawsuits and everything else, but um, you know, that, that's also tough lessons you have to learn at a certain point. Owners are owners and they own everything and they can, basically exercise whatever rights they would like to. Mike, with, with that company, you came in as, as basically BD business development sales guy, right? So actually I came in, I was, uh, I billed full time for the missile defense agency. Okay. Uh, I was one of the guys doing the cyber work on the ballistic missile defense system, um, primarily doing security around uh, radar data that would get into systems to track anything fired at the United States. And, um, then the rest of my day, I would do business development work. So I would still, you know, at that point, look at FedBizOps and email contact I had and, and things like that. And I earned my way onto overhead. So that was the deal. I, you know, the 
owner said, if you get this many people into the company, that basically equates to your salary. So then you can move to be full-time sales, which I did. And then, you know, then you're like, all right, I'm the sales guy. I'm going to go make money. And then you get your quotas and you kind of go, oh, <laughs> you know, I, I was, again, I was, I was super young and naive and I, you know, I never even thought about that. I was like, are you going to tell me how much money I have to make? I was like, yeah, yeah of course. <laughs> But you, you, you did tremendous as far as the help you did with the growth trajectory for that company and even now in your current role. And it sounds like most of it was going out there, getting the business. Is that right? Oh, yeah, very much so. Um, okay. And this market has changed a lot from, from those times. I mean, those, that was 15, 20 years ago. And you could, you could go into some government buildings still. You could, with a uh, government ID, badge into different buildings and visit customers. Um, email still wasn't as popular as it is now. So if you emailed somebody, sometimes you could actually get a meeting. Uh, these days, good luck getting in a government building uh, with most of the customers that are out there. It's just a very different environment. I'm curious. You mentioned earlier you went, you walked into some event, and it was like a, it looked like a Joseph A. Bank convention with all these older men, white hair with suits. Um, you definitely do not come off like that, um, as people will see in this episode. You know, you, you're not, I don't know if you're a suit-wearing guy, but you're definitely, you're tatted up. Um, so uh, when you're coming in there and developing that relationship to earn that business, did you see anything? Did you get any pushback or did you feel anything differently as far as? Um, well, two things. So I, I've collected a lot of the tattoos and everything along the way. Okay. All right. <laughs> so, but, uh, but yeah, no, I've always been, uh, honestly, I've always been a little bit different. I've been a little bit aloof in terms of, uh, you know, how I am personally at times. Um, but I can, can usually go in and have an intelligent enough conversation that uh, it kind of puts them at ease. But I, what I, what I get from a lot of people is that the, the visual doesn't match the audio. You know, it, <laughs> it, people, you know, it's, it, you see a guy like me comes in tattoos, gauges, you know, I, I weigh, you know, most of the year somewhere between 250 and 270. I'm not a small guy. Um, and, you know, I, and with people here, I, you know, run a company and they think it's a landscaping business or a construction <laughs> business. And that, you know, it's fine. It's, but people have those, those stereotypes. And so sure. you kind of, I'm aware of that. And so, you know, but I also read the Wall Street Journal every morning and I, you know, do, do things like, so I can carry a conversation. So a couple minutes into it, people kind of go, all right, it's still a little odd, but we're okay. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm sure it's helped though, as far as your personality, like you mentioned, you, you're walking in there, especially most of the people are in your role back then were more like stiff and, but you're mm -hmm. going there with the energy, the enthusiasm, yep. right? Yep. A lot of people, and I've heard that, you know, a lot of people, they like that. They, I can, I have the ability sometimes to really kind of energize a room or energize people just because I tend to be a little energized myself. Um, and so it, it, I think part of it is, is, you know, a lot of, a lot of business, a lot of any business, whether it's leadership business or anything, it's kind of, it's, it's really psychological. And so it's, it's not about much more than, you know, making somebody feel kind of good and that you can be entirely trusted and you're going to get something done. From there, you land to Inquisit? So from there, I actually took some time off. Okay. Um, you know, once I had gone through, a, at that point, I had gone through, my, my mom had passed away. Uh, I had uh, gotten divorced or separated, split up, and uh, actually ended up getting fired at Facile, uh, all within just under six months. Oh, wow. That so, was a hard time. Yeah, and so, and, and I then, and then I went into a lawsuit and, and I can tell you, I mean, that business, part of the reason that that business was as successful as it was is because those of us that were there, we poured everything into it. I mean, that, that was not just my job. That was, you know, kind of in, in large part who I was. And, um, and I, you know, the hours that you spend there means that that also consumed really your social life and things like that. And so um, when it came to, to that end, I actually was, was at home on a Sunday visiting my kids and I got an email on my, my work email that said I had decided to leave the company. And I went, what? <laughs> so, and we had had a couple of heated conversations the week before, but certainly not to that degree. So I, I called my business partner and, and kind of said, Hey dude, what's up with this? And he said, look, man, uh, I'm sorry. I'm just trying to keep my own job. 
So I said, okay. okay. And so it, that, that kind of basically started the, the you know, a wheel turning that did stop for another, I think it was about a nine month lawsuit before we finally settled. Uh, and, and, you know, during that time, like I said, it was my personal life. So you, you feel, you know, you kind of feel very alone after feeling kind of like you're on a little bit of a pedestal. And it's a, it, it was by far the most uh, humbling kind of period of time for me personally, because you just realize you, you, there are times in your life where you kind of feel like you, you own, you know, you're, you're good, you own it. And, um, and you don't. And it's just, it's, I've learned to be a little bit more uh, conservative without going too far. Meaning you still, I think that to be really successful in business, you can't let the scar tissue make you fearful. You still have to be fearless, but do it in a little bit more of an intelligent manner. Those six months must have been extremely tough, as you mentioned, with your mother passing, your marriage ending, and, and basically it's another partnership come to an end. How long were you, what, 11 years with them? 11 years, almost 12, yep. Yeah, um, it just must have been a difficult time. Let me ask you this. Now looking back at it, Mike, what would you have done differently? Um, uh, yeah, that's a great question. So I, I'm a big, my philosophy is in any situation like that, whether it's, you know, whether it's your personal life, whether it's your business life, culpability is always spread amongst multiple parties. And at the time, I think that um, I didn't necessarily see where I was culpable or even was not picking up on those kind of things. Um, I don't know that I, in, in all honesty, because of that, I don't know that I could have done anything different because I was probably pretty unaware. But if I could, I, I would have definitely, you know, modified my behavior to be a little more calm. Um, at that point, my business partner had kind of taken over and was doing a lot of the communication with the owners. Um, and I didn't, I didn't necessarily have as much of that link, which I think um, would have been better for me to have established on my own. Okay. So be as close as possible to ownership with yeah, the communication in, flow. In that case, absolutely. Yeah. You know, we had been with those, with those two gentlemen, we, you know, they were, we'd have dinner at each other's houses. We were close with our families. I mean, it was a very, very, very tight relationship. And, um, you know, I haven't spoken to any of them. So in, in years, one of them just actually had a, a medical thing come up and I, you know, want to make sure he's okay. I still think about him and care about him, but it's a very strained thing after going through that. Sure. Sure. Um, so during that six months, how, how'd you snap out of it in the end or during, during that time? Um, it, you know, I think it was mostly just needed the time okay. to, you know, to, to get through it. I, I honestly, I, I went to a, like, th I started a therapy, like I went to a therapist and, you know, I just had a lot of stuff going on and that I know helped. Um, and then, uh, I just got to a point where I, I the other thing I did was I rode the country with uh, the girl I was dating at the time for two months. So we spent two months on a motorcycle just to clear heads. Okay. That's and that was, that was an absolute blast. So then kind of coming back from that in a, in a little bit more time, you just, you kind of get your energy back. That's how it was. I mean, it was just like, you, you feel a little deflated for a little bit and then you start to feel like, okay, I need to, you know, I need to get myself going. I need to get back in business. I had to kind of figure out where and how that would be um, with the settlement because it, it barred me from certain areas of the federal market. Uh, so I, you know, I started an executive coaching company and started to talk to different organizations. I was actually looking at um, getting into streaming media at that time. So this was, you know, this was 2014, 15 timeframe. So we knew that that was going to take off and I was trying to get on the front end of that. We had actually started a business uh, and my business partner about six months into it uh, had a heart attack. Oh, wow. So yeah, so that, so that then ended up passing away. So that ended up fizzling out. And, um, but I started getting my, my clients were asking me to come run their businesses. And so um, I went over and one was ATA. So I ended up over at, at ATA, which is a data analytics firm that does a lot of work in the Intel community. And, and uh, it was just for like a six month gig to help them grow, get a schedule in place, a couple of things like that. And um, had been 
Inquisit was one of my other clients in addition to a few others. And I had been talking to another company about coming in, taking in a, like a CEO spot um, and kind of prepping them for a purchase. But the guys here, when I was talking to them about making that move and kind of letting them go as a customer of mine, they, they got really insulted. They said, well, why, why would you not ask us? We don't work for us. And, and I, I was honest with them. I'd known them for, at that point, probably eight or 10 years. I said, but you guys are a lifestyle business. Um, and I'm really looking to, you know, have a acquisition event. And that, cause I, I enjoy that aspect of it. And I, I'm not afraid to tell you I want some money. Yeah. And so, uh, so they got really insulted. So we're not a lifestyle business. And so I kind of said, look, you know, look at your budget. Where's your money going? You know, here's some of the things that you guys are doing that are just inconsistent with a business that would like really want to grow. And so it ended up to be probably a month or two's worth of discussions kind of, okay, well, what should we be doing or what would it look like? And, and those kind of things. And, and after continuing to talk to them, I felt like this was really the right place for me to be. Um, they are, especially after coming out of a seal. So the, the, if there's any Achilles that the ownership group here has, it's their fidelity to people, you know, and, and, and there's an examples. I, when I came in here, there was 22 people on overhead with 83 or four people in the business and none of them were billing. I mean, one of them was billing part-time. So those, those numbers don't work and the financials demonstrated it clearly. Um, but they, they, they're, they're almost, it's like their heart couldn't let them do some of those hard things. And so after coming through this period of time, it's a lawsuit with people you're in for, you know, you're, you're so close with for a de- over a decade. Um, that attitude became something that was very attractive. In addition to the fact that they were going to give me the autonomy that I was looking for. Um, you know, you mentioned the tattoos. There's a part of that personality that's also, I, I, I have a problem with authority and kind of need to be in charge in my head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, um, they were going to give me that leeway here. And, and I knew that that's part of what I needed. And so uh, we cut a deal and, and a contract to come over here and help them out. And within, I gave them a lot of credit because within a, just over a year, uh, they decided hands off. And I've, got, I've had the reins here for, for a couple of years. And so it's been, it's been a journey <laughs> to say the least. It was, uh, the business is, its financials were not fantastic. Uh, never been audited by an outside auditor. Had no DCAA accounting system. Pretty low on vehicles. 100% of the work was in the 8A program. Hadn't won a deal in three years. Was only doing about five or six proposals a year. So part of it was, all right, can't really make any of that much worse, which is nice, but it's a lot to fix. And um, in all honesty, it wasn't until this past week that I shot an email to the executive team and, and some of the other folks and have had some discussions where I said, we're stable now. You know, one of, one of the factors of building a successful business is building successful teams in the business. And one of the, the areas that makes a team successful is stability, right? You have to be around each other and not having additions for a certain amount of time in order for you to, with whomever is on your team, really execute well, right? You know, it's like, you know, I, like I played soccer, right? You, you have a soccer team where the players have been together for a little while. They can make a, almost a blind pass because they know that that player is going to be there. You, you have that same type of thing in business. It's just less visual. And, um, and we're finally at that, at that stage, but it took several years to get there. Uh, and, and in that, Time frame. We've had some people come in and out of the business. We've we were a hundred percent outsourced recruiting to a hundred percent insourced and filling positions in less than two weeks. We were um, never audited by an outside auditor. We not only are out, audited financials every year, but we passed the DCAA audit and all that kind of stuff. Um, just we we implemented Dell Tech. I mean, just a whole lot of changes. And so, you know, and and, and you had to prioritize them in the beginning and kind of figure out, okay, what am I, what am I going to get done this year or this six months realistically? And then what are the things that can wait? Um, and so we went through that process and 
then you get to the other side of that and it takes so long to, to really to turn a business because you're turning, you're turning a culture, which takes a really long time. And while you're making that turn in the culture, you're also turning a lot of the tactical elements of the business, establishing a new strategic plan, all of those kind of things. And so when you, you, you can get into a rhythm of creating changes, but there's a point where people just can't take anymore. And so you kind of have to know when to pull back, maybe leave things alone that you would really like to have fixed and, and just go, we now just need calmness and stability so that we can execute and that other stuff will get fixed as we go. Sure. You mentioned when you started, there were about 80 or so people on the team, right? And I think 20 or more were not billing. How, how does the team look like now, a few years you in? Yeah. So we're over hundred people uh, in the business. Uh, we've won our first full and open job. We're getting a lot more in the small business market. So kind of, and, 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 you know, slowly shedding some of the, the legacy 8A stuff. We, we, we want a couple recompetes behind a prime or using our stars contract. But, um, and I, there is uh, 12 people, 13 people on overhead. So okay. the overhead numbers cut the billable numbers up, the winds are up, the margins up. So yeah, the financials went from, from losing money to a, you know, a, a very healthy EBITDA on 13 million in revenue. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm sorry. We had based just under nine. So we okay. had when I came in. That's amazing. Mike, is, is there something when you come in that you do? And, I, and I'm sure every company may be different. I know you had the growth prior to Inquisit um, with that other company, you leaving just under 150 million in revenue. And now the, the turnaround and everything you've been doing right now currently in Inquisit. But is there a staple that maybe other business owners listening to this they can maybe just think about or possibly implement in their business. Oh yeah. Um, so well, you, you asked about coming into the business and I, I was going to answer that, but that's a little bit of a different answer. Um, and what I mean is when you come into a business, um, it's, it's incredibly difficult because so number one, I had a really, really great record behind me. Right. I mean, you know, there's not many people who were part of a team that, went from essentially zero to 150 million in a decade. I mean, that's, and with, with very good profitability. So there's often an assumption that if you did that at this place, you're automatically going to be successful and be able to do it someplace else. And that is a, that is a very false assumption, you know, because nothing happens that is done by a single person everything that's done in a business, like anything else, it is, it, it, it is a team effort. And so um, a little bit of it is kind of, how do you dispel that without uh, taking away the hope that that brings to people as well? Um, and just kind of explaining, you know, what, what made it successful. So, well, it's, you know, we had different, it was different. So, you know, these were parts of our culture. These were things that we did. And, um, and so, so the, the first piece coming in as an outsider is actually that you need to become an insider before you can change them. So uh, you spend your first, however long it takes you, let's say six months more or a year, um, not necessarily doing all of the things that you would like to do, but really working in with everybody, doing things the way that they do them and slowly kind of asking questions or offering something, but not being too pushy because you basically cannot change a culture or change an organization without becoming part of it first. Uh, and so that, that from a coming in perspective, that becomes the thing. And then, and then you have to really give people clarity in what it is that you envision in terms of where you want the organization to go, what they could potentially um, you know, get out of it in the, in the long term. And I think it's important to stay with, with people with the, the long term vision. Uh, and, and the other thing I do is I write down what the culture is. And what I mean by that is there are, there's a culture of a company, but there are a set of behaviors that ultimately kind of create that culture. And so um, writing that down, proliferating that, hiring on it, evaluating people on it, all of those things uh, is part of what makes that culture stick 
especially when you're trying to change it from something that it was because you have you're going to have resistance to that you're going to have people that are going to leave the firm you're going to have a lot of things that happen that people view as negative but the reality it's just part of the process of creating change so what what i put together here we call the inquisitor credo so you know i, I told people we need an identity and so we decided we're going to call people inquisitors <clears throat> and um and then we put together the inquisitor credo and it's nothing that's earth shattering it's very simple stuff but what it does is it prioritizes things in people's mind and it creates a alternate way to have a conversation so for example i i might you know on the credo it says you know we're for better or worse we're going to be honest with our customers right it's, it's i don't know if it says that verbatim i should know but uh but it's kind of an, an integrity is a big thing here yeah. and so something happens and, and you can get into a discussion well how, how should we tell them what 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 is it that we should tell them and you go guys look that's not who we are, right? Here's the credo. We're going to be transparent. You just have to be tactful in the way that you do it. And bad news doesn't get better with age. So, you know, have the tough conversation. That's what that's about. You know, so you kind of, it's not now I'm counseling you personally and, and commenting on you. It's that we all agree that this is who we are. And you guys kind of veered off a little bit. Let's get back on track and be who we are. Okay. What would you say are some of your successful habits or skills that you incorporate on a daily basis that you've that have been useful for you in your life personally and business? Um, I'll answer it funny. Inefficiency. So what I mean by that is we come up through the ranks and have this kind of belief system that if we work really hard and we get a lot of stuff done, then we're going to get promoted. And, and for the most part, that's upheld. <clears throat> but there's an inflection point when you're going up and being promoted where if you're still making all of the checklists and doing all the work, what that means is you're not leading and that's your job. And so the, the biggest, um, you know, a strength that you have to develop, I don't, I don't, there's not, I'm sure there's people that do it naturally great, but not a lot. Um, is you really have to decide that you have to be inefficient in a way, meaning that you have to spend the time talking to your employees, coaching them, working with them as they work through a different situation or a challenge that's come up. Um, get to know them a little bit. What's going on? I mean, their wife, their kids, they're, you know, we've got, you know, I've been through a divorce. We've got people that are going through divorces in the company and, you know, they could, they, they need a little love through that process. And, and when you do those things, that's, that's not checking the balance sheet. That's not reading the proposal. That's the, that's not doing those kind of things. What it's, what it's doing is it's scaling a lot of those types of tasks across people who actually know that you're interested in them and that you have their best interest in mind. And so that's where that team aspect starts to move a little faster. And then, you know, you've, you've got to kind of know that if you get to that level of leadership, especially an executive team, you're working and kind of burning the midnight oil to get the tasks done because there are still boxes that need to be checked at that level. Yeah. So yeah, you definitely, you have to care then for the team. It's all about the team. Yes. What would you say, Mike, is your biggest challenge right now in, in your role today at Inquisit? Um, biggest challenge right now is honestly, it's probably sales with, um, you know, there's, there's a number of things that have gone on in the industry that COVID has exasperated. Um, you know, there, there, there in, in the last, let's say 15, 20 years, what I've seen is there was a genuine interest in finding the absolute best companies for the taxpayer and getting them into, you know, a contract vehicle or, you know, a contract or whatever it was. And it now seems like most of the acquisitions, especially the really big important ones, are about staying out of a courtroom and not necessarily finding the best companies, but making sure that we get this awarded and we're not going to the court of federal claims. Okay. And so it has made the, the sales process um, a little bit more convoluted, especially when so many of the tasks are going that direction. So what the government's of what GSA's done is they've created this best in class um, 
contract vehicles for different types of work. And if you are not on one of those contracts, you're losing out on literally tens of billions of dollars. And so, you know, companies are fiercely fighting to get these things. And if you're not on them, you know, you're missing out. And so we were, we were on the original Alliance Small Business 2. That went in through court. It got canceled. Now everybody's kind of waiting to see what GSA is going to do. They've made an announcement. Something's coming out in December. Um, they've also had STARS 2, which has the shortened period of performance. So that's another best-in-class vehicle. So on the small business side, a company like ours, those are two contracts where they have billions of dollars tied to them that one of them's coming off and going to be replaced and the other one went through court and no longer exists. So now we're kind of locked out of those things. So what it does is it kind of steers you in different directions in terms of how and where you find the work um, onto just, you know, regular schedule, open bids and things like that. While at the same time, um, trying to figure out how to win one of those big vehicles so you get access to that money in this kind of restricted little crowd. So that's, that's probably the biggest challenge at this juncture. Um, other than that, I mean, it's, it's, it's been fun. I mean, COVID has, has made it so that um, a lot of things are just delayed. You know, I, it, we're, we're a services company, so we tend to put people um, at a government location despite the fact that we could do all of this remote and we do have, you know, managed services capability that we, we work on um, with some of our customers out of Maine. But for the most part, government likes to kind of like, you know, make sure that their contractors are keeping the chairs warm in their building, not necessarily at home. And, uh, and so that has changed a little bit of, of the dynamic because and they don't want to now go through a transition because you don't know what might drop on the floor in that process and then of course you can't get everybody together that would violate some of the safety stuff so from a, a sales perspective it's been a little bit slow i see you mentioned earlier just recently that you sent an email out i think last week to, to the team to the executive they're saying that we're now in sort of calm waters totally different scenario than we were before yep. what does the next five years look like for inquisit what's the vision um sure vision is uh over the next couple of years we're going to execute an MBO. Um, we don't know what that's going to look like yet, but uh, we're actually working some of that out with the owners now. And um, now for, for people who don't know what an MBO is, yeah. if you can explain, please. Sure, sure. It's a management buyout. So, okay. Thank um, you. Yeah. So, and, I, and again, we might do an employee stock ownership. We might do just a straight buyout. We don't know what the financing and all that's going to look like yet, but um, really like to do something that's a little different in the industry and kind of thinking about, you know, how that can be done. Uh, and, and, you know, maybe an ESOP might be the kind of best thing. I don't know yet. Um, so that's, that's a major, major, major portion. And, and the other is um, when one of these best in class vehicles really grow the company and then start to bridge out into some um, other more unique capabilities. So, you know, I've got a little bit of background in the data analytics. I've got several folks here that have a lot of AI background. Um, I'd like to see us in a little bit more of a, a development mode in some of those areas uh, versus just trying to, answer what the government has coming out and, and um, be able to lead on some of the forefront. So, you know, we're building out things, like I mentioned before, on the managed services side, even as far as going for outsourced SOC and, and those types of things. So um, the, the, you asked about the vision. The vision is, is to not just, you know, grow and grow the company, but really get the organization to where we're on the front end of technology as opposed to kind of being more in the support role. And we've started to take those steps, but I think we can really do it much more aggressively over the next couple of years now that we've got that stability in the firm. That's awesome. That's great to hear. Last question, Mike, what, I know you're a busy guy, but what do you like to do in your free time for fun? So in addition to the, the bodybuilding, um, I actually, I'm a huge motorcycle guy. So I love to just, if I get a day or a long weekend or something and I can take off on the bike, that's absolutely one of my favorite places to be. What do you ride? Uh, right now, I'm on a uh, electric glide Harley Davidson. Okay. So nice, you know, it's the the old man bike. You know, the big. Yeah, the big, yeah. Just so comfortable, and you know, I'm a I'm a guy who's been known to take to disappear and end up in Texas or something. So I just like a big comfortable bike. <laughs> well, so riding from here to Texas. Yeah, it's about a thousand miles. Okay. Wow. Okay. Where, if people want to reach out to you, I, I know you said, obviously you leading, you're the president there, but you mentioned also, you also do executive coaching. So if people just want to reach out to you for whatever it may be questions, what's yeah. the best way? 
uh, LinkedIn's great. And I, I get a ton of sales stuff in there too, but I really try to get back to, to most people will say. Um, but yeah, that's probably the easiest place to get a hold of me. And I, I've got, we've also got a couple startups going and it's just this, the, the COVID stuff with everything being a little slow, you know, took the opportunity to, to look at some other areas where we could get some businesses going. So it's, it's actually really active and fun now. So we're starting to get to the other side of all this stuff. That's awesome. Are, are, are the startups related at all to what you're doing or totally different industries? Yeah, one of them's, uh, one of them's in the industry. Uh, it'll be a more of a, a business to business thing. Um, the owners are, the owners of Inquisitor are kind of running it, um, a little bit separate. I'm doing a bunch of help for them, but, uh, Basically, what we found over the last several years, I mentioned, there's, there's not a tremendous amount of um, government contractor interaction. And especially if you are fairly new to the industry, like, you know, a lot of small businesses, mid-sized businesses, they haven't really developed that big network and, and all of that kind of stuff. At the same time, there has been a significant amount of information that's essentially been put online, that's, you know, out there um, in the open. And so what we're doing is we are looking at a subscription model where we can work with businesses that are kind of small, mid-sized businesses is kind of the target. And for less than they would hire or want to bring on a business development person, we can basically get them an entire pipeline, contacts, uh, phone numbers, emails. We can recommend some of those opportunities. And then with the subscription and a couple of those opportunities, we commit that we would give them essentially a capture package. So we, we are a, a research firm, if you will, and then we'll research those specific opportunities. So we can make some customer calls. We can talk to some of the incumbent folks. We can look at all the, you know, the, the YouTube videos and the podcasts and the, you know, hundred page strategic plans and, you know, really put something comprehensive together based on a lot of industry experience and the fact that, you know, we've all been in that role, right? Where you're still trying to manage cash flow and run operations and, and do all of these things. And, and they're like, Oh, I got to grow this business or it's not going anywhere. Uh, and so um, for basically with our, our mid price point, we have three different packages, about 60,000 a year, which is you know less than most BD analysts are asking for. And we can give a lot more information. So it's a nice investment. It's a nice business model. Is that already live and out or not yet? We're going to launch that right after the new year. Oh, that's great. So putting right. everything together now, um, you know, little things, sales documents, website, things like that. But we've the, the model and a lot of the documentation behind it, we've already got done, which is cool. That's great. Mike, last question. What's your favorite cheat meal? <laughs> favorite? <laughs> <My> pizza. <laughs> pizza? Yeah. Okay. What, what type of pizza? You know what? I just like good old plain northern pizza <laughs> so just cheese yeah okay it's like it sounds like my boys my boys just except my oldest one they just plain cheese yeah let's go classic <laughs> all right that's good mike thank you so much for coming on the show i really appreciate it thanks for your my time pleasure. my pleasure all right take care you too If you haven't done so already, please make sure to subscribe to the show and leave a review and comment and let me know what you think. Thank you, and I'll see you all very soon on the next episode.